Let's say you have the opportunity to spend 15 minutes with a very important person to talk about anything you want. Someone perhaps like the president or the general secretary of the UN or your biggest sports hero like Luca or LeBron or your celebrity crush like Chris Helmsworth or Gal Gadot or perhaps a member of your favorite band like BTS or Blackpink or an influential innovator like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Ma. What would you ask them or say to them in those 15 minutes? Would you ask them what food they like? What is their outlook on life and the economy? Would you tell them about yourself and how much you admire them? Let me give you a few seconds to think about what you would ask them or say to them. Now, how many of you thought about asking them if they knew Jesus? How many of you thought about telling them about your relationship with Christ? And if not, why not? You were given this one amazing opportunity to tell these influential people about anything and you don't think to tell them about your Savior, Jesus? Perhaps you are scared and intimidated. Perhaps you think that's someone else's responsibility. Whatever the case, throughout our lives, we often have the opportunity to speak to many different types of people, some of them very influential in our community, some of them important in our society. But we don't think to share with them about Jesus Christ. And the question is, why not? Whether we come before kings or paupers, before influential people or commoners, or before our family or friends, we should be able to boldly, with love and grace, share about Jesus Christ and share how our relationship with Him has transformed our lives. On this special weekend, I would like to challenge the people of our church to have the courage to stand and boldly and naturally talk about Jesus to those in our spheres of influence. The Apostle Paul had an opportunity like this, and he didn't waste his, quote-unquote, 15 minutes. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Now, while you're turning to Acts 26, let me describe the background and context of this chapter. You see, Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem by the Jewish religious authorities who wanted him killed for telling people about Jesus. But because Paul was a Roman citizen, and there was a plot to kill him. He was taken to the Roman provincial capital of Caesarea Maritima and turned over to the Roman governor Felix, who would decide what to do with him. Felix knew Paul was innocent, but didn't release him. Instead, kept him in jail for two years and was soon replaced by Festus. Again, the Jewish religious authorities laid out their false complaints against Paul to the new Roman governor. But Paul appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. Because Governor Felix wanted to know more about this case against Paul and this Jesus he spoke about, he was going to give Paul an audience. And it so happened that the Jewish king, King Agrippa II, and his wife Bernice were also in Caesarea at that time, and Agrippa too wanted to hear out Paul. The Bible tells us that King Agrippa and Bernice came into the auditorium with great pomp and fanfare, along with the commanders and the prominent men of this Roman provincial capital. And of course, Governor Festus was there. You see, Paul's quote-unquote 15 minutes was not only before one VIP, but was to an auditorium full of the most prominent people in the Roman province of Palestine. What would Paul say and do? And this is where we pick up the story in verse 1 of Acts chapter 26. 
I read now verses 1 to 11. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Here the Bible tells us the Apostle Paul began by telling the VIPs assembled just how righteous a person he was since he was a youth. He told them how he was a strict adherent to the Jewish laws and customs as a premier Pharisee. In fact, Paul lived a life that was so outwardly righteous that everyone in the Jewish community knew of him. He was such a zealot for the Jewish faith that he even persecuted Christians for their supposed blasphemous faith against the Jewish religion, not only in Jerusalem, but in other cities with all the authority that came from the Jewish high priest. No one could question what an outwardly righteous and quote-unquote good person Paul was as defined by the Jewish religious community. This was a man who walked the talk of his beliefs, but his outward righteousness and action was misplaced and the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, would confront Paul on his way to Damascus. Continuing in verses 12 to 15, While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Bible tells us the resurrected Savior, Jesus, appeared to Paul on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians and asked Paul why he was doing what he was doing. Jesus then said, It would be hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. Now, what does this mean? A goad is a stick with a pointed iron tip used to prod or guide livestock, usually used on an ox when it was plowing. It was used to steer the animal in the way it should go. If an animal refused to comply and, quote-unquote, kick the goad, intense pain would come as the iron tip would be pushed into the flesh of the animal. Jesus was telling Paul, if you continue in this route, 
it would not be good for you. You will be hurt, and you will lose this battle. Paul's zeal and beliefs were misplaced, so the Lord was redirecting Paul to the truth and to the right direction. Paul was convinced and convicted to place his trust in the Messiah Jesus who had appeared to him and converted to becoming a Christ follower, adhering to the very truth he fought so hard against. You see, in telling his conversion story, the Apostle Paul was telling the audience listening that it didn't matter how righteous he thought he was, nor how good others thought he was. Even someone as pious and holy like him needed a Savior. And he was glad the Lord Jesus made him realize this on the road to Damascus. You know, I think we often forget at times that even good people need a Savior. There is no one living on this earth that is so good and holy they are guaranteed entry into heaven. God's standard is perfect holiness, which no one is. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 reminds us that no one is righteous, not one. That's why anyone who does not place their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior is destined for hell. They are destined for eternal separation from God. That's why wealthy, powerful people should not intimidate nor overly impress us. They too are utterly lost in sin, just like we are, and they too need a Savior. Even the well-respected Queen Elizabeth II needed to place her trust in Jesus as her personal Savior to go to heaven. Or Mother Teresa of Calcutta also needed to place her trust in Jesus Christ alone as her personal Savior to go to heaven. The nicest, most kind, most generous, most powerful person on this planet need to place their trust in Jesus Christ alone as their personal Savior in order to be eternally saved. That's why instead of being scared or intimidated by powerful people, feel sorry for them that they are eternally lost if they don't know Jesus, even if they're good people. Be courageous to share with all of your friends and family members who are good people but don't know Christ that they need a Savior because the Bible is clear about the perfect holiness needed to enter heaven. My friends, you and I can stand before kings if we remember, number one, that even good people need a Savior. Remember, even good people need a Savior. The Apostle Paul was not afraid to stand before kings knowing that title notwithstanding, we are all the same. Everyone is a sinner in need of a Savior, and those who are saved are simply sinners saved by grace. This truth, realized by every member of our church, will motivate and challenge us to do the work of the Great Commission. I read now verses 16 and 17. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. The Bible tells us the Apostle Paul continued by telling the rulers about the charge the Lord gave to him. He was to be a servant of others and be a witness to them of what Jesus had and will reveal to him. Paul was to serve as a witness for the Lord to everyone, both Jew and Gentile alike. It is the same mindset we are to have as well as Christ's followers, remembering we are called to be a servant of others 
and a witness for Christ. You see, if we have this mindset that we are to serve others, then it makes it easier for us to say and do what needs to be said and done for all types of people, even important ones. Because as a servant, we no longer have to prove ourselves greater than the one we meet. If our Master, Jesus Christ, has tasked us with certain responsibilities, such as doing whatever it takes to sacrifice for the gospel's sake, that we will not be offended if it is beneath us or feel intimidated because it is above and beyond what we think we're capable of and should not mind what we are called to do because the one who died for us and the one we acknowledge as Lord has commanded it. For example, you're a bank vice president, and the president of the bank asks you to get coffee for a bank teller. Would you do it? Of course, because your boss told you to do it. Or if he asks you to share with the bank board trustees the tough news that the bank isn't doing very well, you do it because your boss told you to do it. It isn't something you would want to do, but you still do it. You do it because the one you respect and call boss has asked you to do it. So it is when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord over our lives and know He has called us to serve others. We do it because we respect and honor Him, and quite frankly, we owe our lives to Him. If everyone in the church has this understanding that we are called to serve others and be willing to do anything the Master asks us to do, then there would be little complaint in the church and everyone would jump at the chance to sacrifice for the gospel's sake. So for example... If the church asks the church community to park a bit further out or even park off-site or perhaps to walk to the church so that others can find parking easier, would you be the first to raise your hand to volunteer for this and count it a privilege to serve the Lord in this manner? Or if you knew there was a need to serve in a particular ministry, but it entails that you wake up an hour or two earlier on a Sunday morning, would you be willing to do so without grumbling? Or if the call goes out that our church shows the watching world that we love and honor our Lord by coming to church on time, seated and ready to worship when the first song is sung, would you all respond with excitement? Would you be willing to lose a business deal or give up an entertainment event for the sake of someone coming to Christ? If not, then it will be very difficult for this church to grow and make an impact in our community for Jesus Christ. Because if we can't do these simple things to sacrifice for our Lord, how do we expect to do what it takes to share the gospel with others who are eternally lost? When our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ asks us to do something, we should do it because He died for us as our Savior, and we call Him Lord. May this serve as a reminder for us. But I do love the culture of our church because so many in high positions in society serve one another humbly in this church. If you only knew the type of jobs and titles the people who open the doors for you or welcome you have, you might be in for a shock. If you only knew how influential some of the people who teach our children in Sunday school or the people who scan your QR codes are, you might be surprised. Many are executives with oversight over hundreds of people or they have high positions in our government, or they are owners of large companies and familiar franchises. But they want to serve you anonymously without fanfare and drawing attention to themselves because they serve 
the Lord. Praise the Lord for this culture that we have and a culture that we want to continue to have. Let me just say, if you're someone who is wanting to serve only to gain the limelight, to be on stage only to draw attention to yourself, or feel entitled or demand certain things because of your position or title, you will not be given the privilege of service because your motives are wrong. Paul reminds us that we are called to humbly serve others and to do whatever it takes to serve as a witness to the world and testify of what Christ has done in your life. If I were to call you out by name to come and share what Christ has done for you, would you do it? Would you be able to do it? Would you in your shyness say, I don't have a story to tell. I couldn't possibly speak to those people or stand in front of these people. How can I testify when I have not lived a perfect life? And yet Paul was able to speak to kings with such boldness because his Lord and Savior had instructed him to do so. Rise, stand on your feet, for I have a purpose for your life. You are to serve others. You are to be a witness to everyone I ask you to share with. You see, when standing before kings, number two, remember that we are called to be a servant and a witness. Remember that we are called to be a servant and a witness. If we remember this, then we should be willing to do anything for Jesus Christ and say what needs to be said instead of cowering in fear, worried that someone may not like us or they might reject us or say no to our appeal. My friends, no one likes to be rejected. But when was the last time you invited someone to church? When was the last time you talked with someone about spiritual things, about Jesus Christ? We don't do it because we like to do it. We do it because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us, asks us to do it. I read now verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here the Bible tells us the Apostle Paul continued by telling the VIP audience listening the things Christ asked him to share with the world. Verse 18 spells it out, to turn them from darkness so that they can see the light, for them to turn away from the power of Satan to the almighty power of God and that through Jesus Christ they would obtain forgiveness of sins and eternal life and eternal rewards. These matters were the most important things of life. Paul wasn't called to go out to the world to make small talk with them, to make them laugh, to entertain them, to make them feel good. He was to go out to them to share with them a life-changing message. Jesus told the Apostle Paul, I'm tasking you with telling people about their greatest need, the need for a Savior. Even if they don't know that is their greatest need, you need to tell them that is their greatest need. With a limited time, is that what we do? Do we tell people that we come in contact with about the greatest need they have, the need for a Savior? You know, in any given conversation, we have much to talk about, whether it be about the weather geopolitics, the local gossip, the economy, and the skyrocketing inflation, the rising price of gas and materials, the start of the NBA season, who likes whom, and the list goes on. But my friends, do you talk with your friends and your family members about the important things of life? 
Have you shared with people about the greatest need in their life? Perhaps the next time you catch up with a friend or have dinner with your extended family, would you consider telling them about Jesus Christ if they don't know Him or encourage them to know Christ more intimately if they do? Who knows if you'll have another chance to do so? This may be your one and only opportunity, perhaps your last chance. If a loved one is about to die, or if you'll never see your friend again and have one opportunity to spend 15 minutes with them, what will you tell them? What will you talk about? Will you tell them about the basketball score from last night's game? Will you tell them about what you watched on Netflix last night? Or will you talk with them about the important things of life? Jesus was telling Paul, the mission I give you is to prioritize telling people about the important things of life, which is how to obtain forgiveness of sins and gain eternal life and eternal rewards. You see, my friends, the important things of life are not temporary. The important things of life are eternal. This is not to say we can't enjoy talking about things that are happening in the world, but just a reminder that in the course of your conversation, when appropriate, make sure you talk about spiritual things. Make sure you talk about the important things of life. If you have Christian friends, do you keep each other accountable, like asking each other, how is your devotional life? How is your prayer life? How is your church community life? Ask them, how are you growing in Christ? What spiritual lessons or insights do you get from God's Word? What is God teaching you? You know, recently I was biking around Metro Manila one evening. I got a bit lost and happened to turn onto a street with many bars and clubs. People were partying. Men were there trying to pick up the ladies. And women there were dressed trying to attract the men. The music was cranked up. The alcohol was flowing. Many were jamming to the music, drinking, dancing, and other things. I thought to myself, this is how the world sees fun and pleasure. But what will tomorrow morning look like for these people? People waking up in strangers' beds. People filled with a huge hangover, filled with great remorse and regret. People shamed. I bet some of these people are deeply hurting, covering up their sorrow and heartache with alcohol and drugs. Perhaps some may even be selling their bodies, all for one night of joy and pleasure. But that temporary pleasure will give way to hopelessness and sadness. Do they even know where eternal joy comes from? Do they know that there is true hope in Christ? Do they even know the Savior? As I quickly biked away from the street, I said a silent prayer for them and realized we have a mission and a ministry. Each one of us has to understand the world is filled with lost people. There are indeed more important things in life that we should prioritize over temporary fun. We have a mission to show the world the light of Christ over darkness, to turn people from the power of Satan to the almighty power of God, and to tell them about the redemptive power of the living Savior. You see, we can stand before kings, number three, when we remember to prioritize the important things of life. Remember to prioritize the important things of life. If there is something so important we need to tell someone, it doesn't matter who that person is, whether king or pauper, whether rich or poor, whether in our community or in the fringe of faith, we need to tell them the important news 
that Jesus Christ saves. Important news needs to be shared to all. As I've told my children, if I'm sleeping, do not wake me up, even if the internet is down. While it is important to you, it is not urgent. If you have a disagreement, work it out amongst yourself. But if the house is on fire, definitely wake me up. My friends, many of our friends and family are headed to the fires of hell. And somehow, all we want to talk about is the weather and the latest show on Netflix. I read now verses 19 to 21. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. The Bible tells us the Apostle Paul told King Agrippa he was not going to be disobedient to God in his instructions. In fact, Paul did what was asked of him and spread the gospel to both Jew and Gentile alike to places near and far. And for doing what the Lord God wanted him to do, the Apostle Paul said, that's why the Jews wanted me arrested and killed. Paul was telling Agrippa and those listening, I don't care about the consequences as long as I'm obedient to God. For Paul, he didn't stop what he was called to do simply because some people didn't want him to do those things. He would not be disobedient to God. Sadly, in our culture today, especially as Christians, we are more fearful about rejection, not being liked, more fearful of the pain and consequences for standing for the truth and doing what is right than on being obedient to God and His Word. And that attitude has to change. It is the change for the people of the church. It is the change or we will be frozen with fear and not do anything in a world that is growing more hostile and antagonistic to the things of Christ. If the Great Commission is a command, are you more afraid of rejection and not being liked, or are you more concerned with disobeying God? You know, oftentimes the church has become too comfortable a community where we find such assurance to the point where when we see everyone else not doing something, we feel okay not doing what God wants because other Christians are in the same boat. That's why we need to spur each other on to live for Christ and to do His will. But regardless, even if everyone is not doing something, will you not do it as well? There are many stories of heroes of the faith like Daniel and his three friends, Moses, Joshua, David, the deacon Stephen, Nathan the prophet, all who lived lives of impact because they remembered above all not to disobey God and His commands, even if other people were not doing it. And that is how we can stand before kings when we, number four, remember to be obedient to God above all things. Remember to be obedient to God above all things. If God tells you to do something and the one you love tells you to do something else, who wins out? If God tells you to do something and your best friend tells you to do something else, who wins out? If God tells you to do something and your boss tells you to do something else, who wins out? The answer should be God. But if God should always win out, then why do we live the lives that we do where it seems God loses out in every situation? My friends, it should be okay for you 
if your closest friends and family members are very angry with you because you're following the Lord in obedience. Learn to accept that there will be people who are upset and unhappy with you for your biblical convictions and your choice to follow Jesus. Even if prominent, important people are upset with you for doing the right thing, smile and move on. In this way, you can stand before kings. Do you think that Paul was afraid of King Agrippa, Roman governors Felix or Festus? Of course not. Definitely not by the way he spoke. He said it so clearly in verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now look with me at verses 22 to 23. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Here the Bible tells us the Apostle Paul told King Agrippa and the royal audience listening that he was able to say what God wanted him to say to all types of people, both small and great, because, don't miss this important phrase, because of God's help. You see, Paul was echoing the truth that apart from Jesus, he could do nothing. He relied on the enabling help of his God to be able to persevere through the many challenges, the many ups and downs of the Christian ministry life, to be able to stand and to be faithful to the call. My friends, don't forget that without the Lord's enablement, we can do nothing. If we ever forget the Lord, our church will not continue to grow. We will not be able to make an impact in our community. If we do not humble ourselves, the Lord can easily take His hands of blessings away from our families and from our church. And it doesn't matter our legacy. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter how many years we've existed. It doesn't matter our name. Many kings of Israel and Judea, and even foreign kings like King Nebuchadnezzar, learned this lesson the hard way. When they grew proud, when they got spiritually proud and did not do what God asked them to do, God looked to others to fulfill His work and bless them instead. My friends, pride covered in spirituality is sinister. It will bring down a person. It will bring down an organization. It will bring down a church. Spiritual pride subtly covers up sin and justifies wrongdoing, where spiritual words are often used to cover up a desire for self-recognition and power. We as a church must watch out for this. And yet, good thing, Paul first and foremost gave God the credit. Paul said he obtained help from God to be able to stand firm and proclaim Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles. This is a reminder that we, as a church body, should not rest on our growth and accomplishments. The past is the past. The present is what God is looking at. He's looking to see if we will continue to be fully reliant upon Him. Sadly, today many churches around the world sit empty. They are in decline or are dying because they relied on their own power. They relied on some church growth strategy and forgot about the enabling power of God that comes through humility and prayer. My friends, we can speak to kings and really to anyone because of God's enabling power, for He alone can move hearts. We would be babbling fools 
if we try to use our own power and abilities to win hearts and minds. We cannot change hearts. Only God can. You see, we can stand before kings when we, number five, remember to rely on God's enablement to do great things. Remember to rely on God's enablement to do great things. What is there to be afraid of? Whether it is of great people or accomplishing great things or doing the impossible, when we have the enabling power of the living Creator God who is all-powerful, then we have nothing to fear, for this is Christ's church, and we depend upon Him. I read now verses 24 to 29. Now, as He thus made His defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But He said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Here the Bible tells us when Paul had shared what he had shared, Festus yelled out that Paul was mad. But Paul defended himself before the Roman governor and said he was not mad nor insane, but spoke words of truth and reason. I'm sure Paul recognized the authority of this man to have him killed, but he didn't care. He spoke with boldness. In fact, he addressed King Agrippa personally and said, Do you believe what I said? essentially pitting Agrippa against Festus. King Agrippa admitted that Paul's words were indeed compelling and almost persuaded him to become a Christian, to which Paul replied that it was his desire for him and all the dignitaries and all who were listening to be like him, a follower of Jesus Christ, yet without being imprisoned. Here you can see the heart of Paul through his words. Paul's one desire was to see life change in these people through the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. He didn't mind being called crazy. He wasn't disappointed that someone almost believed. His sole desire was to see life change in all the people he had the opportunity to share the gospel with. And my friends, is this our desire? What do we desire of our lives? What do we desire in this world? To gain temporary pleasures and wealth? to have a beautiful church with great music so people can come every week to see a great show, to hear nice, happy reminder messages every week, or to have life change in yourself to be more Christ-like and to see life change in others through the power of the gospel of the living Savior, even if the message pricks and hurts and is hard to listen to. I pray it is the desire of every member of this church body to desire life change, to be like Christ, to see life change in others. And if you desire this for all people, then it doesn't matter whom you come into contact with. You will not be afraid to challenge them with the life-changing message of the Scriptures. You see, we can stand before kings when we, number six, remember that our desire should be to see life change. Remember that our desire should be to see life change. Finally, 
Look with me at verses 30 to 32. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Here we're told that when they discussed what Paul had said, they all came to the realization that he had done nothing wrong. But since Paul had appealed to Caesar, there was nothing they could do to free him, but could only send him on his way to Rome. Now, we may think it's too bad that Paul was not freed at this point, but it was God's will that Paul be sent to the seat of the Roman Empire where he could continue to speak boldly of Christ to leaders and influential people in the capital city, and perhaps, as tradition tells us, even to Caesar himself. It is obvious that Paul was not afraid to stand before kings, and neither should we when we, number one, remember even good people need a Savior. Number two, remember that we are called to be a servant and a witness. Number three, remember to prioritize the important things of life. Number four, remember to be obedient to God above all things. Number five, remember to rely on God's enablement to do great things. And number six, remember that our desire should be to see life change. Because while we may stand before kings and many important people in our lifetime, there's only one king that we will stand before whose opinion of us really matters, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 reminds us that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what we have done, whether good or bad. Will we stand before Him proudly on that day to tell Him what we have done for His glory? Or will we stand before Him with regret and shame because we wasted the life and resources He has blessed us with to pursue our own glory and legacy? You know, my friends, one of my biggest fears for each one of us and for this church is that we get so comfortable with doing church instead of being the church that we go into a sort of maintenance mode. We only do things because we've done so every year. We get caught up running ineffective programs and activities, busying ourselves with that instead of seeking to reach the lost for Jesus Christ. This time next year, we'll be celebrating our 55th founding anniversary. But there won't be much to celebrate if we're not the church and the people God so desires. So may I challenge all of us that as we celebrate 55 years next year, that we remember 5-5. I challenge you to invite five people to come to church and share the gospel to at least five individuals. This will show your willingness to speak boldly for Jesus Christ. The results we just leave to God. But if everyone in this church does it, I estimate that at least, at a minimum, 15,000 individuals can be reached for Christ this year through our church, perhaps even more than 20,000. Even if 5% responds, that's hundreds who have come to know Jesus Christ because of our church. 15,000, 20,000 in a city of 16 million people is less than 0.1% of our metropolis. Certainly, the lost people are out there. But you just do your part in this challenge and invite five individuals to church this year and share the gospel with five people. And through the enablement of the Lord, let's see what amazing things He will accomplish and do. Then, in a year's time, there will be indeed something to celebrate.
I hope each one of us will take on this challenge. What is there to be afraid of? With Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can stand before kings and boldly proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ alone saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the life and example of the Apostle Paul, who ably stood before the kings and the rulers there at Caesarea. From his example, Lord, we can also take confidence and courage knowing that we can talk to anyone because we share a message that everyone needs to hear. And through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, you will change hearts and minds because you can break down even the hardest of hearts. So, Lord, help us with excitement and wonderment and anticipation. See what you will do through this church as its people engage and rise up to do the work you've called us to do, the work of the Great Commission. May the message that Jesus Christ alone saves be a message that we so happily want to share with all of our friends and family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.